0: I was busy, I was restless, I was working nonstop, and I was growing incredibly weary. By the time I finally came up for air, I realized I no longer knew how to sit down and have a conversation with somebody because I had been working so hard, so long, so nonstop. It was 20 years ago uh, when I was new, newly ordained as a pastor of this church, <laughs> I had... Uh, saw such a huge need for so much to happen that I had started three community groups, three Bible studies, that I was leading three different nights of the week. I was teaching Sunday school, Sunday mornings. I was developing leaders. I was launching a new arts ministry, renovating the chapel, renovating the parlor, getting so much done, building ministries here and there, running constantly, constantly accomplishing things, constantly getting stuff done, my, my quarterly reports to the session, I always hated giving them because I hate giving reports. But afterwards, I always felt great because all the stuff that I could tell them that I had done. Constantly needing to accomplish. Feeling worthless if I wasn't accomplishing. But not having any real rest. I mean, I was taking a day off a week, but I wasn't really resting. Not in the soul. I was driven I was restless, I was busy, I was anxious, and in a little while I became very, very weary. Have you ever experienced anything like this? Weariness? where it's not just a physical tiredness, but it's a spiritual tiredness, an emotional tiredness, a fatigue that just doesn't want to go on anymore, but you know you've got to keep going and and keep accomplishing and keep getting things done and going through the post-it note list that is always right here in my pocket. Uh, Do you know what this is like? This was me 20 years ago, and what would Jesus say to Greg Johnson 20 years ago? And what's he saying to us now and what's he saying to you right now in our restlessness we're going to read from the second and third chapter of the gospel according to saint mark beginning in chapter 2 verses 23 this is the lord's gospel one sabbath jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along they began to pick some heads of grain and the pharisees said to him look Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath so the son of man is lord even of the sabbath another time he as jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse jesus so they watched him closely to see if he could heal if he would heal him on the sabbath and jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand stand up in front of everyone and jesus asked them Kill Jesus. What do we see here? Well, first we see Jesus emphasizing the beauty of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was, literally in Hebrew, it was the Shabbat. It was Saturday. Um, but there was this principle from creation of one day being set aside for rest. And Jesus is emphasizing the goodness of that for us. It's his point in answering these religious leaders' criticism was that God's intention in giving us a day off each week where we're deliberately unproductive and get nothing at all done, that that, that was something to bless us, uh, not some religious rule that we're supposed to go hungry in order to fulfill. Jesus said, haven't you read what David did? David, when his men were hungry, he went into the temple of God and took the consecrated bread from the altar and ate it because human life is valuable. And ceremonial rules, as valuable as they are, are not as valuable as people. And Jesus said the Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. It's not some religious rule that we're supposed to do in order to build some righteousness for ourselves so we can feel good about ourselves and that we dare not violate under any circumstances. Uh, It's something that's there for our benefit, this design of a weekly Sabbath, fitting that pattern that God himself, that God-like pattern of creating in six days, and each day at the end of the day, setting aside his work and say, it's done. And then there was evening, and there was morning, a first day, and there was evening, a morning, a second day, this pattern of, of every single day getting to a point in your day where you set your work down and you say, it's all done, now I'm just going to be. And then getting up the next day and doing what has to be done and setting it aside. If you can't do that, you're gonna die. It will destroy you if you can't put the phone down, if you can't check email, if you if you can't refuse to check email one more time, you know. It's that divine pattern, not just the one day and seven, but the working and then setting it aside, and there was evening and morning, a third day, a fourth day, a fifth day, a sixth day, and then a seventh day where you deliberately get absolutely nothing of any significance done. You accomplish zilch. You just are. You're not trying to check things off a list. You know, it, it, He's saying this is something that, that was made for us. It was made for us so that we can thrive, and it's a limitation that lines up with our humanness Um, You know, the the Sabbath was made for, for us. It's a limitation that lines up with what it means to be a human being, where if we work all the time, we drive ourselves off a cliff like a fish has a limitation. And if I were a fish, I'd be very frustrated with the limitation because I like dry ground and a fish has to stay in water all the time in order to live. And if a fish wants to break free of that limitation and be liberated, the fish is going to die very, very quickly because it's a limitation that lines up with God's design for fish, that they thrive in water and rest week daily rest and weekly rest is something that lines up with our human nature. It's not a question of of whether we have limitations. We all have limitations by nature. The question is which limitations actually benefit us, which limitations actually help us thrive when you can set aside the schoolwork and say, you know, that's just going to have to get done another time because right now God's priority is that I be alive and that I thrive and that I rest. Whatever it is that enables you to feel free and unencumbered and rested, whatever it is, you must do that. It is a biblical priority. The Sabbath was made for us, a limitation that lines up with our human nature, and the Sabbath has the potential to keep in check our human drive to accomplish. Uh, if we can stop being productive for one day, intentionally get absolutely nothing done and do that on purpose, that can help break in us an inborn impulse that tells us we have to perform, we have to keep working, keep accomplishing. You know, There's an emotional health that you can gain if you can learn to be unproductive and not care, in fact, know that you are doing exactly what God wants by being unproductive. It can give you a freedom to focus on the things that really, if you step back, probably matter more to you than getting one more thing off your list checked off. Um, The fact that Jesus even had to ask this question of the Pharisees of whether it's lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to save life, and the fact that they remained silent, they couldn't answer it because their legalism had put them in a position where they thought it was a sin to do good because you're doing things, you know? they miss the fact that this is a gift and that it can liberate the stressed out soul. I remember when I was in high school, um, I didn't yet know Jesus um, and I was a straight A student. I mean, I wasn't just a straight A student. I, I had way over a 4.0 when I graduated. I graduated number four in my class of 600 and I can tell you exactly why the other three above me shouldn't have been there because they took easier classes. Um, but uh, I wouldn't have been lying, <laughs> but I was the driven kid. You know, the one thing I was good at was schoolwork. I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't popular. I didn't look great. I was just this skinny kid. And the one thing I could excel in that made me feel really good about myself, made me feel righteous, made me feel better than the other students, was, was acing all my schoolwork. When I graduated um, high school, I had 32 credit hours at the University of Virginia already under my belt just from advanced placement tests. Um, I still had to go four years because of the but, – but in those four years, I got to take, you know, history of England one through five, Greek, you know, this, these aren't architecture classes, um, you know, Roman architecture one and two, you know, stuff that for me was really nerd and funny and great and wonderful. Um, but I was miserable. I was miserable. I was constantly striving. There's, there was never a time when I was conscious that I wasn't working on something or worrying about something. And if I ever did rest, I was, felt guilty resting because I felt like I should be getting something done. And I remember when um, someone at my church challenged me on the notion of a Sabbath, uh, I, I didn't grow up Christian or I mean, I grew up atheist. I didn't really know the Bible or anything like that. But, but at first I was like, okay, well, if this is something that's really important to God and it's one of the top 10 list, it's a command, okay. And I remember it was my second year of college And what i found i was accepting the fact that i might have to get an a minus in something um because i wouldn't have enough time but what i found when i deliberately was unproductive on sundays um is sunday very quickly became my favorite day of the week i loved going to worship i loved going out to eat for lunch with folks after that i loved going home and taking a nap and not doing laundry and not working on a paper and not working on my, my architecture you know drawings Um, and not caring about any of that or thinking about any of that until Monday morning and going to bed rested and refreshed. And what I found was all of that work I was doing shrank. In God's design, it shrank. And I was still making A's, Um, but God shrank the work because he wanted me to rest. We see here the beauty of the Sabbath, but we also see our temptation to view the Sabbath rest, that weekly rest and that nightly rest, through a legalistic grid instead of seeing it as grace, seeing it as a work, a human work that we do. What's the difference? If you see the Sabbath as a work that you do for God, then you're going to be working by observing the Sabbath. You're going to be striving by observing the Sabbath because you think it's a rule that he gives so that you can prove that you're good enough, right enough, faithful enough. It's about you laboring to observe the Sabbath in order to check off one more box on your list of spiritual accomplishments. The Pharisees were viewing the Sabbath as a work. That's why they're offended when the disciples start eating little bits of grain from the field that they pick off because they're breaking one of the rules. Do you really think God cares? Jesus didn't. Look. Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Well, it wasn't unlawful according to God's law. It was unlawful according to their eight billion extra legalistic rules that they built around it in order to keep from breaking the Sabbath, even though they were by default breaking the Sabbath by their Sabbath keeping because they were viewing it as a work that was ultimately all about them and their self-righteous agenda of proving that they're one of the good people so they can look down upon all the bad people so that they can feel justified about themselves. It's, It's a work of religious self-advancement. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It wasn't, it was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But that was the Pharisees' motivation that human beings owe something to the Sabbath and they have to keep up with it, never stepping off that performance treadmill so that they can work up their own righteousness. It became, therefore, all about them. And it became a deeply selfish thing because they were using God's commands in order to build their own godless, damnable self-righteousness so that they could look down on other people and feel confident about themselves. That is never why God instructs us. Um, he wants just the opposite. He wants us to come in humility as broken, damaged goods to be loved by a Father who delights in us and sings over us in song. Notice how the religious leaders were looking for Jesus to mess up. And so they went to a synagogue, on the Sabbath that they knew Jesus would be at because they, they knew there'd be sick people and Jesus would be tempted to heal them on the Sabbath because he's that kind of guy they'd figure that much out. And, and sure enough, he gave them exactly what they want. He healed this man who had been his whole life with a shriveled hand, being missing out on so much of life work being so much more difficult, everything being so much more difficult, even basic hygiene being so much more complicated for him. And Jesus is there and heals the man. And yet, the religious leaders, it says, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they went to the synagogue where Jesus was on the Sabbath. And we read the man's hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot how to kill Jesus. Why would they need to kill Jesus? What was Jesus threatening that was so huge, so vital, so essential that they had to destroy Jesus of Nazareth? What was threatened was their identity as the good people because Jesus was saying that this thing that they had spent one day of their week, their entire 40 years or however long they they had lived, Oh, every single week striving to keep these rules and regulations in order to build a righteousness for themselves so that they could be the good people. Jesus said that's worthless. He threatened their identity, and so they sought to destroy him. We can be tempted to see the Sabbath as work rather than as grace. There's a reason we face this temptation. The fall has made us restless. How does this work? Scripture tells us that we were originally created by God, to live with him in a beautiful place where there was no shame because there was nothing wrong with human beings, nothing for which to be ashamed. We were flawless, perfect in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, walking with God, completely naked, feeling no shame. Everything was great. And then our first parents turned against God. But in the garden, they had been created to find their approval from outside of themselves in a God who closed them with his eyes, who delights in them in song, who is always approving, always accepting, always praising, always blessing. And when we declared our independence from the divine, that relationship was severed. And we all start out outside the garden now. None of us starts back inside the garden. The world is fallen. Good, but fallen. Fallen. And as a result, here we are as beings who are still created to find our sense of approval from outside ourselves and what other people think, um, or how we're seen by other people, or how they view us, or how they talk about us, or how we feel we present to them. We're still looking for approval, only we're looking for it very often from other people, or sometimes even inwardly from ourselves. That's why... We have this inbuilt need to feel like we have to accomplish something because we need to gain that approval through what we do. It can be through our relationships, it can be through our clothing, it can be through our physical body, it can be through our career and all the stuff we get done. It can be because we're such a faithful churchgoer, you know, tithe to the micro penny. Uh, you know, it, there are all sorts of things we could do to try to gain approval, to try to justify ourselves, to justify our existence. Um, And it's why Jesus speaks to us about this inbuilt need to accomplish. In Matthew 11, he calls it being heavy, burdened, and therefore weary. For the Pharisees, it was their obedience to all of the religious rules and accomplishment of their strict adherence to this religious plan that gained them this sense of approval, of accomplishment, that was therefore threatened. It drove them. And they had to destroy the one who threatened it. But we can substitute anything for God's approval. It can be having the right theology, or having the funniest TikTok, or being seen as knowledgeable, or dependable, or competent, a star athlete, a perfect parent, having the perfect yard, uh, you know, having the perfect car, going on the perfect vacation, having the perfect friends, and the approval of all the right people. There are all sorts of things we can use to try to justify ourselves, but they leave us weary. We think if I could do something great, if I could make a lot of money, if I could be—I applauded for my achievements, if I could obtain a certain title or position, serve in a field that's prestigious, or maybe I'll do something good that helps other people so that they'll know I'm not a nobody. Then I'll be somebody. It's, it's driven by this need to validate ourselves because we were made to find our sense of approval outside ourselves. And so we strive, and we strive, and we work, and we push, and we go further, and we go the next mile. You may feel like this every time you post something on social media, Facebook or Instagram, and then you're tempted to go back and look to see how many people threw you alike. It's that drive. In Arthur Miller's After the Fall, Quentin says, you know, more and more I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. For a lot of us, it's one or the other. Uh, Then, what a good lover. And then, what a good father. And finally, how wise or powerful or what the hell ever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned. A verdict, anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty no judge in sight, and all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of my existence. You see it in the oft-quoted line from Chariots of Fire, where you've got Harold Abrams, who's not a follower of Jesus, who, who looks at running, and he's Dreads the thought of losing, but he also dreads the thought of winning. He says, "I have ten seconds in which to prove the reason for my existence, and even then, I'm not sure I will." He ended up as a runner in the 1924 Olympics, winning the gold, but even that gold medal brought only fleeting satisfaction. In contrast, this with this is a true story. Eric Little, uh, who um, was a believer. He says, um, at one point, he says, "I believe God made me for a purpose, and that purpose is to be a missionary in China. But He also made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure." You know, both doing the exact same thing, one of them absolutely miserable because he's using it to try to justify his existence, and the other, knowing his existence has been justified by Jesus by grace alone, feels the pleasure of God as he does the exact same thing. We're always trying to prove ourselves, to validate ourselves, to accomplish enough to justify our existence. And I want to caution all of you who are followers of Jesus about the danger that is deeply ingrained in Christian culture in the United States of using God as a means to an end of accomplishing that thing that you think will justify your existence. Um, You know, you might hear it in a Christian businessman's thing where you can do all things through Christ. You can become a millionaire. and Well, maybe you can, but that may not make you happy. And, And when Paul talked about doing all things through Christ who strengthens him, he was in jail. And he was saying, I can suffer through Jesus Christ. He wasn't saying, I can get 17 Rolls Royces through Jesus. He's not using God to get something that he thinks will make him happy because that would be his savior and that would then be his Lord. And God would just be a tool. Um, be careful about trying to use God to get something, whether it's being a great athlete, whether it's being an accomplished business person, being the perfect parent, thinking that that's what you need, that's your Lord and Savior, and you're going to use God to get it because God will not be used. He is not a prostitute. He is looking for love. He is looking for relationship. Why do we feel this need to justify ourselves in one level it's an effort to cover over our shame when our first parents were expelled from the garden their first emotion they experienced was shame and shame is that voice in your head that says you stink you're a nobody you suck you're worthless and so we try constantly to prove those voices wrong to drown out the shame by accomplishing things uh and thinking that that inner voice will therefore be silenced. The Bible commends work, but it's why we work. It's why you're restless. That inner voice of shame driving you to overwork, to overparent, to overaccomplish, or to loathe yourself for failing to do so. It's a constant race up the treadmill that doesn't lead you anywhere but to weariness. I know the joy I feel every time I cross one of these things off my post-it note that is always right there with me to judge me. And I know when I get the last one done and I can crinkle it up and throw it away, I feel a palpable surge of joy in my soul that I have accomplished something. But it doesn't last. It will never last. Because I'll have another list tomorrow and another one the next day. It's never enough. And in religion, this leaves us trying to accomplish trying to put a good face forward, to run faster, run harder, do more, always driven, but never feeling the smile of God and the joy as we run. And so it leaves us restless in every area of our lives. I remember one pastor talking about this. He talked about being restless in our work, job insecurity, wage disparity. If you make a lot of money, you have to work hard to justify that. And if you don't make a lot of money, you have to work twice as hard just to get by. Your work phone follows you home. Your work emails. Work has fewer boundaries. and You can never escape. We're restless in our work and we're restless in our families. Constantly shuttling around to doctor's appointments and little league and soccer and scouts and tutoring and dance. In the car, come on now, hustle, hustle, hustle. And so where are you going to find time to have a meal together? You get home from work probably later than intended and immediately start fixing dinner. And as soon as you're done fixing dinner, you start eating the dinner. And when you're done eating the dinner, as soon as that's done, you start doing the dishes. And then when that's done, you start cleaning the kitchen and you're constantly needing to do something to get something done. But there's an alternative. No time, there's Burger King Burger King was not created To make good food Burger King was not even created To make cheap food No, Burger King was created to make what? Fast food And it wasn't fast enough To begin with, so what did we invent? Drive-thrus, so now you don't even need To get out of your car and go inside You can just drive past the restaurant And they'll throw your food in your window at you You know, We're restless in our family life And we're restless in our rest how much of your flexible time is spent frantically flipping through your phone? We become addicted to it. The little punch of, of, of adrenaline and joy and excitement and approval when somebody likes something or we see something new that we didn't know before. You know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, X. Uh, you know, I can spend an entire day just cycling through apps and news websites and emails. And then when I'm done, it's time to go through them again. And then when I'm done, it's time to go through them again. And I will totally lose an entire day off if I let this happen. You know, at times I have to turn off my phone for a whole day just so I don't end up cycling through apps in an ever, never ending, you know, need to, to accomplish it, to catch up. You know, this past year I deleted, last year I deleted all the phones on my, all all the games on my phone. Um, It was liberating. It was really great because I realized that all of these games are designed to keep me anxious and to keep me going. And every single one of them. And I got rid of all of them. It was wonderful. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just letting you know I love it. Um, how about vacations? How many of you work twice as hard before a vacation then you come back and you have to work twice as hard to catch up and you find yourself talking to somebody and saying, you know, I really need a vacation from my vacation. Um, you fill your vacation up with so many things, not wanting to miss out on any of the sights and, and you're exhausted afterwards and there's something inside of us that no amount of vacation can quell. One of the most basic ways we anesthetize our souls to God is through busyness. You know what it's like? Restless. Restlessness inside of you and it kills our children and it empties our relationships of everything that matters because you can't sit still. You can't look somebody in the eye. You're too distracted from all the things in your life and it ruins and wounds those we care about the most. So how do we break free of this universal human need to prove ourselves, to cover our shame, By accomplishing or being successful at something, anything. How can we break free? Friends, Jesus is offering himself to us as our Sabbath rest. He's saying, I am the person of rest. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What's he saying there? Who made the Sabbath? God. What is Jesus saying when he's claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath? He's claiming to be divine. But he's also claiming to be the man of rest. The Lord of rest. Jesus, the person in whom our souls find rest. Jesus invites us in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. Do you feel burdened? Has it made you weary? He's speaking to you saying, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle. He's giving you a reason. Learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Only in Jesus. How does he do it? It's like the passage that Christine read from 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's Martin Luther's great exchange where all of your sin has been transferred from you to Jesus, and all its shame, and he bore that shame on the cross, and he took it and he, he, he took the entire penalty for it so that you will never have to carry it again. And then when you believe, he takes all of his righteousness, Jesus' resume, his honor and glory, all of his works and transfers them freely to you so that you now fed the 5,000, you raised Lazarus from the bed, the dead, and you always did what pleased the Father because you are united to Jesus in whom all of that is true you're never gonna embellish that resume. There's nothing you're gonna do to improve on it. Um, Because everything that needs to be done has already been done by Jesus. So lay down your burdens. Step off the performance treadmill. At the end of your life, you're not gonna look back and say, gosh, I wish I had gotten three more tasks done. Jesus already did everything that needs to be done. Are you weary? Are you tired? Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your soul. During the 1965 march from Selma, Alabama to the state capitol in Montgomery in order to uh, demand constitutionally protected voting rights, a large number of people, the first attempt, were beaten, shot with water hoses, Uh, a lot of people died. A lot of people were injured. Their second attempt was stopped by a court injunction forbidding them to proceed. Their third attempt, they just kept walking. And they kept walking. And it doesn't matter what kind of abuse they faced, they were going to keep on walking. And among those was an elderly lady named Miss Hattie. She was elderly and she was walking and she was determined she was going to walk and keep walking those three days from Selma to Montgomery, to demand for her and her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren the dignity and respect that they deserve as human beings made in God's image. And she was a very elderly lady. She couldn't walk very well. And Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend Doctor himself, went up to her at the end of one day and began begging her to take a spot on the bus. They had a bus for those who couldn't walk. Hattie, just please take a spot on the bus. Your feet are going to hurt. You're, gonna, you're not going to make it. I'm worried about you. Miss Hattie, please take a seat on the bus. And Miss Hattie, she looked at Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., put his hand, her hand on him and said, Now, Martin, my feet are tired, but my soul is rested. Let's pray.